Good Sunday, South Valley Community Church. As you know, we've been doing these online services for quite some time, roughly 15 months, and we're gonna continue to do them, but I wanted to make you aware of one change that will be occurring. Starting in August, we are going to switch to live streaming our 9 a.m. service. So what that means for you is, is very little, but there is, is a couple changes to that. You'll still be able to, to watch online, but um, some of you we know from uh, our, our analytics on our YouTube page watch before 9 a.m., you, you early birds, and so the service will actually begin at 9 a.m. and it'll be a live stream, so you can't uh, wake up extra early and get it, say, at 7 30 a.m. like you were doing. The other thing is with YouTube, as we stream on that, sometimes it can be difficult to find a streamed video if you go to our page. Not always, but every so often there's some difficulty. So if you have any trouble finding the live stream of the service, just go to svccchurch.com and on the main page there'll be a direct link for that. But other than that, we're going to keep doing these things. We're excited to see more and more people for our indoor services, but these online services will still be going out. Uh, they'll just be live streaming our actual 9 a.m. service. Now we are in the last week of our series, Lessons from the Early Church in the Book of Acts. And just a 30-second recap as we get ready to conclude this series. The Book of Acts and our series begins with Jesus claiming all authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth now belong to me. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because he holds that authority, he gives the church their mission. And the mission of the church is to spread the gospel. He says, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may hear and believe the gospel. And the book starts off uh, in one specified specific location, Jerusalem, and the gospel is preached and people believe. And then like concentric circles, the gospel message spreads and spreads until where we get to where we were last week, which is in Ephesus. And Paul's there and the gospel is preached and it's, it's like this explosion. Tons of people are believing. All kinds of people are becoming followers of Jesus. Now we're going to pick back up there and kind of look at the last several chapters of the book of Acts. And what we're going to pick up is a point where the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus and he has the conviction that he now must go to Jerusalem. And he's going to give this sort of a farewell speech to the Ephesian leaders, the elders there. And in this speech, there are some sort of cryptic and haunting words. Here they are. Acts chapter 20, verse 22, the Apostle Paul speaking. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So did you catch that? He has this conviction from God. He has to go to Jerusalem. He's going to keep preaching the gospel. But he says, I know I have this feeling, this conviction from the Spirit everywhere I go in every town I am, that I will face afflictions, trials, tribulations, and chains. I don't know about you, but if, if I knew that that was what was ahead of me, I probably just would try to not go. Um, but Paul says, no, 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 I don't count my life precious to myself. It's about the gospel. And so he knows afflictions and chains wait for him, but he's going to go nonetheless. And from there, the book of Acts and the life of Paul is, is like a roller coaster. He goes from one trial and tribulation to, the, to another. He's, he's maybe set free here and there's some good news, but then another bad thing befalls him. 
It's this constant up and down trial and tribulation. And when I say trial, I don't just mean that in, in a time of like a word being used to describe a difficult time. He's literally facing real trials. So he has to go before governors and leaders, Felix, Festus, Agrippa. He's sent to Rome. He's shipwrecked. He's stuck on an island and he's back on track to Rome. And so it's this non-stop affliction, non-stop trial and tribulation. And a question arises at that point. It's like, how does this guy keep going? How does he keep going? What does he have that motivates him to endure this? I mean, already in the book of Acts, we've seen him suffer so much. Beatings, imprisonment, chains, and he keeps going. And to make this question even more profound, how can he keep going? I want you to know that we haven't even talked about, the book of Acts doesn't even record all of the suffering that Paul the Apostle goes through. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul actually lists some more of the things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And this list probably isn't including every last thing, but it at least gives you a picture into how much this guy endured. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 says, Five times I received the 40, la- the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, without clothing, not to mention the other things. There is also the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. So that's not even a conclusive list. There's, There's probably other things. But you get a glimpse into what this man is suffering and enduring for the sake of the gospel. Just briefly highlight some of these things. He said, five times I received 40 lashings minus one. Now, if you grew up in church, you might have heard heard this um, 40 lashes minus one before because it's often talked about. But essentially, it's this practice that you're, you're... You're lashing someone, you're whipping someone 39 times, 40 minus 1. And the idea was that 40 40 would possibly kill someone or do some type of damage that that couldn't be undone. So it'd be 40 minus 1. But here's the point. You take it to 39 because it's it's designed to break a person. 40 is too much, but 39, just enough to break someone. And most people, you know, don't experience something like that in, in their life. Oftentimes, because of horrific situations, people have. There's all kinds of horrible things that happen. But Paul doesn't experience this just once. He does it five times for the sake of the gospel. Now think about this. This type of beating is meant to break a man. It's supposed to break you down. And he does that five times. Then he says, three times I was beaten with rods. So there's this type of flogging thing. Oh, and don't forget the few times that I was tortured with rods. These rods are, are meant and designed to inflict immense amount of pain. Again, they're designed to break you. Five times the lashings. Three times beaten with rods. Once I received the stoning. And he just says that like a one-off. Like, yeah, that's one of the things. And we talked about this before in this series, what, what stoning was like in the first century world. Most likely what occurs, and we have this from, the, from documents, is that you would take someone to the, to the edge, the ridge of a cliff, And the idea was that at minimum, you would throw them off something that was twice their height. Now, if you were being merciful in this type of thing, you would throw somebody off something with such a height that they would die instantly. To be cruel would be just throw them off barely just enough so then they survive and they feel the additional rocks and pain being thrown at them. 
And this is, of course, what happened to Paul because we know he survived. He miraculously survives. Nonetheless, he went through that. Then he says he's shipwrecked. And, you know, don't think like, oh, you know, lost at sea and he just had to, to, to call for help and he had to wait for two days before the helicopter came and rescued him. In the ancient world, this is terrifying. It's one of the most scariest things. You lack food, you lack water, starvation, dehydration, the sun just beating on you, draining you all day. In addition, if you had other people on the ship, if there's a lack of food or resources, you tr- people turn on each other. Who knows what horrific things take place? This is what Paul goes through. And he says, I face dangers. And then he lists all the dangers, rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, like everywhere there's dangers. And he says, I've had sleepless nights. I've hungered and I've thirsted. Now, when we say, oh, I'm hungry or I'm starving, it's because we haven't ate in a little while. When Paul says he faced hunger, he's talking about starvation. Thirst to the point of death. These are no easy things. And so you go back to that question, how in the world does this guy keep enduring? What is it? What pushes him forward? Paul actually tells us the answer to this. In another letter that he wrote, he says he has a secret, a secret that has taught him to endure these types of things. Now, that's not to say this secret makes it easy or once you master this in life, you can do Uh, You can go through all kinds of suffering and you'll be okay. Because if you know the New Testament, Paul spends a lot of his time in tears. He's crying all the time because the life he has is hard. It's filled with hardship and heartache and betrayal. So it's not as if this secret makes life easy. But it does give Paul the strength to endure things for the glory of God. So what is it? What what does Paul have? What has he mastered? What is his secret in his own words? Let's turn to Philippians 3.7. Philippians 3.7, Paul says this, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. He says, I have counted everything loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, what, what, what is he counting as loss? Well, already all the comforts that he lost and all these sufferings. But in addition, Paul was a reputable man with success stories. And so he's leaving it all behind. So he says, but everything that was gained to me, I, I, I've left behind. That's verse 7. And if you want to know what that was, you just look to the few verses before. You go to verse 4 and he says, If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Blameless. And so this is a list of all the kind of success that he had. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the prescription that's given in the Torah. He's... he's, of the nation of Israel. He says he's of the tribe of Benjamin, which is significant for two reasons. It means that his family cared enough about their Jewishness that they maintained the lineage and they knew which tribe they belonged to. 
Furthermore, Benjamin was a tribe that stayed loyal to Judah in difficult times. So it's like, I am from the nation of Israel. We are from the tribe of Benjamin. We are a loyal people, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I followed the law like blameless. And if I messed up, if there was a mistake, then I did the prescribed sacrifices to make it right. The equivalent to this in the modern world might be something like, um, I graduated with a 4.0. I went to the best school in Ivy League school, graduated at the top of my class. I have multiple degrees and multiple successful business ventures. And I have all of that. And I bought my first home at the age of 22. And the list goes on. It's, this is like the first century Jewish version of that. And Paul says, all of that is worthless compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It says says, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. In many Bible translations, that word is translated rubbish. Um, it, the Greek word is skubalon, and it literally means like garbage or waste or dung. So rubbish probably isn't strong enough. I mean, what Paul is trying to communicate is that everything that this world has to offer, it's it's garbage. It's done compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So it's like um, he has this treasure that makes everything else almost irrelevant. Think of it like this. If you had $1,000 in your savings account and you lost 500, you lost half it. That's a big deal. You lose $500. That's a big, big deal. But let's say you had uh, $10,000 in your saving account. You lose $500. Still a big deal but it's, it's, not, it's not as big of a deal. Well, let's say you're one of these people who are billionaires and you lose $500. It's no big deal, right? I have billions of dollars, 500, not, not an issue. Paul says that he has a treasure and this treasure is worth so much that all earthly accomplishments are like dung compared to it, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And then, Several verses later, if you go down into chapter 4, verse 11, he says this. And this is going to get into one of the most famous passages in the Bible. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Philippians 4.13, the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I hope you see the context in which we find that verse. The context in which we find that verse is not a context that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, like accomplish all of my personal success goals. Because that's often how we use this verse. Like, I have this goal to do X, Y, Z. I have this personal thing, and I want to accomplish it, and I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context for Paul saying that verse is, I can endure all things. I can endure hardship. I can endure trial and tribulation and still give glory to God and still maintain the mission because I have the gospel. I have this thing, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is about endurance and persevering through difficult things. It's about carrying your cross in difficult times, knowing that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And oftentimes we take 
a verse that's designed to help Christians endure for the sake of the gospel and make it a, a cute verse about us comp- accomplishing some minor task in our life. Now, God cares about the big things and the small things in your life, so you bring Him anything, big or small. I'm just saying these verses, found in their proper context, are powerful, and they're meant to sustain you through the trial of fire. And that's what they did for Paul. He has the gospel, and he preached it, he believed it, and he clung to it. And we are likewise to emulate that. We preach it, we believe it, and we cling to it. And you may be saying, hey, I'm not a preacher. That's a pastor's job. What I mean by preach, the Greek word is keruso. It means just to proclaim. So we're talking about sharing the gospel message, telling of the gospel. We preach it, we believe it, and we cling to it in very difficult times. Because at the end of the day, Paul knows whether it's today or tomorrow, he will die. And on that day, the only thing he will have to cling to is Christ and his promises. And so it's like, in good times, and bad times, in life and death, what do you do? You hold the gospel. You preach it, you believe it, and you cling to it. There's something called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it was a document in the 1500s that was made basically to help new Christians um, learn the basics of the faith. And the document is set up so that there's a brief question and then an incredibly brief answer. And you sort of commit the question and the answer to memory. And, and you do that to teach yourselves these basic Christian truths, but also you have it memorized so they come out in times of need. And so the first article of that Heidelberg Confession it begins with this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's, it's powerful. It's like, what is my one comfort? In life and in death, in the good and the bad. It doesn't matter. When you're living the good life where your life is on the line, my one comfort is knowing this, that I am not my own. I belong to someone. Both my body and my soul, and both in life and death, I belong to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I was online and I saw an article about a man who was with his wife on an airplane. Some of you guys like worst nightmare, but while they're on the plane, the pilot announces, uh, this is not uh, a test or this is, this is not a drill. Um, everyone needs to brace themselves. We need to make an emergency landing. And you can imagine the type of fear that causes. You're on a plane, really, we're going to do the emergency landing thing. And the man who, who, who's writing the article, who was, who was on the plane with his wife, talks about how tons of people start to panic. And you can imagine, you'd probably start to panic. People start to cry. People start to shout. He said, I saw grown men with their head just like completely bowed down, bawling in tears uncontrollably. You can imagine what thoughts are going through your head. Am I really going to die? Is this going to be something where we all die on impact? Or am I going to, going to die some type of horrible, horrific, painful death? What about my loved ones? I wish I could have told this person I love you. I wish I could have talked to them one more time. You could picture people trying to, to get signals on their cell phones, trying to call loved ones, get this one last message across. It's this scene of panic and despair where there's nothing you can do. And the husband in this story at this point moves his hand over and puts it upon his wife's hand, and he squeezes it. And he looks her in the eye, and he asks this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And as they look into each other's eyes, 
they both repeat together that I am not my own, but belong with both body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And see, that's exactly what those things are supposed to do. You memorize scripture and you memorize these truths so that in the moment of trial, you grab your wife by the hand and your wife holds your hand and you say, what is our comfort? Both in life and in death, in the good and the bad, when we're on the mountaintop or we're going down in an airplane, what is our comfort? Our comfort is our treasure, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And at that moment, the article goes on and, and the man looks around at the airplanes and he sees at the airplane and he sees one woman crying alone by herself. And he goes up to her and he says, ma'am, can I share with you why my wife and I have peace right now? And he says he gave her a 30 second gospel presentation. But can I share with you why my wife and I have peace right now? It doesn't mean they weren't afraid. Just like Paul, it doesn't mean there's not hardship. But they were able to endure a trial. And what did they do? They did what Paul did for his entire life and what the book of Acts is trying to teach us. We have a treasure more valuable than gold. And we are to preach it and to believe it and cling to it in the good and the bad when we're at the top of the world and when the plane's going down. Preach it, believe it, and cling to it. Christ is our treasure. There is a surpassing value of knowing Him. And because of that, life can be difficult, but maybe then, and if only then, we can learn what Paul learned, to be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He is our treasure. He is our comfort, both in life and in death. And the gospel is something we, we preach, we believe, and we cling to. And Paul would go on and live the rest of his life like that, in that roller coaster of the ups and downs, clinging to the gospel and clinging to his Lord Jesus. Now, as we wrap up this series, it's worth looking how the book of Acts ends. What, is it, what does it tell us? What's the end of this long journey through this series and this book that we've been doing? This, these are the last few verses. Paul is in Rome, and he's essentially on like sort of the, the ancient version of house arrest, raiding another trial type of thing. It says this, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, now, if you're honest with yourself, that's a little anticlimactic, right? I mean, the book of Acts has been filled with miracles and demons are getting cast out. People are receiving uh, huge miraculous signs and wonders and all this gospel explosion is taking place. And you're like, man, how's this book going to end? He, Paul's going to go to Rome. He's going to preach to Caesar and Caesar's going to become a Christian. And it sort of ends not with the, with the climax, but it's kind of apparently it's at first glance boring. He stayed there two whole years and he welcomed people who visited him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. But here's the thing. If you understand the inner logic of the book of Acts, you understand the book has to end like this. How does the book begin? Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. He gives the church her mission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the book starts in Jerusalem and the gospel expands and expands and expands. And where do we find ourselves at the end of the story in the book of Acts? Not in Jerusalem, but in the capital, in the heart of the Roman Empire. And one who was once a persecutor of Christians is now a faithful servant of his Lord Jesus. And he treasures him and finds him more precious than life itself.
and in good times or bad times, or locked down in the house for two years, this man is going to preach the gospel, believe it, and cling to it. And we too are called 2,000 years later to recognize we are a part of this chain of faithful servants doing their best in a broken word to serve the Lord Jesus. And so we too, we take the gospel, we preach it, we believe it, and we cling to it. And we treasure Christ above all things, the surpassing worth of knowing our Savior. And we recognize that we have one comfort in life and in death, that we belong both in body and soul, in life and death, to a faithful Messiah, King Jesus. So let's be faithful to carry out what the book of Acts started until our Savior returns. Let's pray. Father, we, as always, every Sunday and every day of our life, give you thanks. You've provided us with your Spirit. You've saved us from Satan's sin and death. You are near to us and close to us. You do not leave us nor forsake us. And I pray that in a very, very distracting and difficult world, we would not forget that you are our treasure, you are our comfort. May we cling to to your Son and his work, and may we find peace in what he accomplished at the cross. And lastly, convict us and inspire us to be faithful to the mission that you gave the church 2,000 years ago. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.